Welcome everyone to Be Better Betters. I'm the host, Spanky. Thanks for listening. My guest this week has been in the Las Vegas sports betting scene since 2004. He worked at the Westgate for a decade under the tutelage of Ed Sammons, Jeff Sherman, and Matt Metcalf. He's currently the sportsbook manager at Circus Sports since its inception. Many of those super sharp circle lines we all see are because of this guy. Please welcome Chris Bennett. Chris, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Spanky. So, Chris, I like to start off with how was life growing up? Uh, when I was a kid, I loved sports. I played several of them. Uh, the one that I lasted the longest with was uh, soccer. Um, I was never really that good at sports, but I was a good student in school, and I was pretty good at math, and I've always liked sports and math since I was a kid. Um, grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis, went to college in Illinois, and didn't really know what I was going to do for a career. Didn't really have it figured out as I was getting close to getting my bachelor's degree in college, but I knew... I wanted my job to involve the things I liked the most, which were sports and math. And I didn't know it, but I just kind of assumed that to do that, I'd be working in the sports betting industry. And I figured the place to do that would have to be Las Vegas, since Nevada had legalized sports betting in a way that no other place in America did. And so a few months after I graduated college, not having ever been to Las Vegas before, I packed up my things and drove out from Minnesota to Las Vegas. And first thing I did was just start applying for jobs because I needed to make some money. So I went around to a bunch of different sports books and, you know, asked if I could apply for some entry-level position and ended up getting a call from Jay Cornegay, the director at the Hilton at the time, offering me a ticket writer position. And I was happy to get any sort of offer from anybody and I took it and I didn't even know it at the time, but uh, there were a few people working there at the Hilton that were really good with this bookmaking and odds making stuff. Uh, Ed Sammons was the sportsbook manager, Jeff Sherman, assistant sportsbook manager, and they are still at the, what is now the Westgate today. Uh, and so like I had them helping me along as I tried to work my way up at the Hilton and also Matt Metcalf, who, you know, kind of a contemporary of mine, but a few years older and, and definitely way more advanced than I was as far as understanding sports betting and the market and, and handicapping and all of those things. So between the three of them, that's where I learned so much about how to book games, how to make odds, you know, how to profile customers and how much to respect a bet that any given person makes and, you know, how much you'd be willing to need the same side as a given customer on a given game and for how much money. Um, and that was, you know, where I worked for a little over nine years and actually um, left my position there. And I uh, was trying to figure out sort of, you know, what my life was going to look like going forward as far as, career and uh, actually left the industry for a few years. 
All right, oh, but to- before we go there, before we go there, this is a lot of stuff right here. This is, um, you know, that first story, Chris, was like deja vu when Metcalf was on a podcast where you didn't know what you were doing. You just packed your bags, went out to Vegas. Um, but I think Metcalf had it. Maybe no, he didn't. He, he actually got. He didn't have an offer. Um, he interviewed, got an interview, and um, and you didn't even have an offer going out to Vegas. So you just said, "I'm going to Vegas." Uh, how any pushback from the family? I'm like, you know, you got a degree here. Um, what are you doing going to Vegas? It's interesting because uh, my mother was fairly controlling over certain aspects of my life as a kid, and then it kind of changed in a hurry when I went off to college and it was pretty much, okay, you're on your own. Now uh, you figure it out as far as, you know, what you want to do with your life. And there was never really any, you know, steering from my parents as far as like, well, you know, you should really get uh, a major in this particular field and try to, you know, get yourself in position to, do this kind of work because you'll be set for life or anything like that. It, it was entirely up to me as far as what I wanted to do. Um, they, it wasn't their dream that their son would go work in the sports betting industry. Probably is true for many parents out there. Um, I mean, it's what are we doing here? It's, it's gambling. Um, I'm not saving anybody's life or anything like that. But it's just what I thought was interesting. And I couldn't imagine being one of those people that just works like a nine to five and is just always looking at the clock, waiting for the day to end or waiting for the weekend. Like, I just wanted to have a job that I thought was fun. And I didn't have anyone that I knew in my life that like had worked in this industry. I didn't know like where to go for advice. I didn't know what like a logical career progression might be. I, I knew a little bit just from like being on the internet and learning about some sports betting that way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I just had this assumption that like I had to go to Las Vegas to do this. And I know Matt had, you know, planned his, um, his move a lot more so than I had. And he knew who Jay Cornegay was and he had written him a letter and he knew he wanted to you know, probably work at a specific place. I had no sense of that. I just was like, I'll, I'll guess I'll figure it out when I get here. And that's what I did. Does Jay Cornegie realize how many lives he's affected in such a positive way? Like, it's amazing how uh, a lot of sharp uh, guys today, um, you know, came under Jay Cornegie's, you know, thing. So he's really been a, such a pioneer and and such a, a made such an impact on a business. So that's a, it's it's fascinating to hear how much impact he's had. Um, so okay, so so you, you go out to Vegas, and I know you know. I want to just talk about the the time that you know that that decade at the Hilton. Um, you know, the Hilton and Westgate has always historically been um, a, a sharp, friendly. Uh, place um, and and you, you couldn't really compare it to anything else because you just you know you didn't know you didn't work anywhere else. So how was that culture like? How was um you know as a ticket writer? I know there was always that thousand dollar minimum window, but nobody ever listened. You know nobody ever really uh, paid attention to that. You'd still have the 
you know, a lot, a lot of people going up to that window. I remember, you know, my runners used to tell me that. How, how was that? Like, how was the culture of writing big action and, 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 and writing sharp action and, and, you know, essentially being a hub, one of the major hubs, not just in Vegas, but around the world for having a respected line. Like anybody that's a who's who in the business always, you know, on whatever they have an odd screen, the Hilton was always there, especially for the NFL. The Hilton was always there. And it's still always there to me as, as a very respected line. How did you realize that, Hey man, I, I, I struck gold here by working for such a solid shop. I didn't know that initially, but I came to learn that uh, after working there for some time and, you know, getting into that position where I was responsible for, you know, booking games and making odds on things. So the timing is interesting of me moving out there alongside uh, what was happening at the Hilton because um, Jay Cornegay was brought in as the director, I think in summer of 2004. And I don't really know much about the previous operation at the Hilton, but uh, for those that don't know sort of the landscape of Las Vegas, the Hilton is close to the strip, but it, it's, it's kind of a long walk and it's not right on the strip and it's not, or it wasn't, you know, one of the, the high end hotels either. So you didn't have this like built in clientele of whales that were looking to bet, you know, big money into market numbers where they probably didn't have an advantage. And they had to do things to, you know, make a name for themselves at this location and to get respect and to win people over to maybe make a trip from the hotel they were staying at to specifically and intentionally go make a bet at the Hilton. And the way that they did that, and I would say we did that after I you know, got into a position where I had that kind of responsibility was being very fair with the limits that you offer on every market uh, regardless of how sharp a given customer is and to have very competitive pricing. And as far as the pricing, what really sticks out to me is, you know, you take the odds on teams to win the championship in their sport. So we'll just look at odds to win the Super Bowl. You know, there's a calculation you can do of the implied probability of all the teams. And uh, the term that we talk about is the theoretical hold percentage of that pool. Well, you know, some of the other sports books in town might have a theoretical hold percentage on their Super Bowl pool above 25%, you know, maybe as high as 40% if they're really bad with their pricing. And we would try to be the best in town or, you know, very close to it on our theoretical hold percentage. So for the Super Bowl, you know, early in the season or before the season, that could be 20% or less. So if you wanted you know, to bet on whatever team you liked, whether it was from the standpoint of, I just think this is a good bet, or it's my hometown team or whatever it is, that you could find the best price at the Hilton. And so I think you know, consistently offering the best pricing on things like that, you know, people would find out, they'd tell other people that they knew, oh, like if you want to bet on this sort of thing, you should really go to the Hilton because they'll probably have the best price. I think, you know, the combination of those two factors were really impactful. Another thing that the Hilton had going for it 
is it's a very large room dedicated to watching the games. So it, it is a destination for people to, if you like that, you know, environment for sweating your beds, uh, we had it, you know, a big room, lots of seating, lots of TVs. And, you know, going back 15 years, the environment was just so different than it is now, uh, mostly because, um, you know, we're just starting to get, you know, iPhones around this time. There is no mobile app. I mean, a couple of places in Las Vegas had a system where you could place bets on the phone, but you had to have a pager that would send you a code and you couldn't look at anything. It's just like a voice system on the phone. So it was very clunky. For the most part, people were making all of their bets in person back then. And so, you know, we had to have people physically at the Hilton placing their bets, you know, for us to have handle and for us to have the potential for revenue. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, what a time. It, 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 the times have such changed so much where um, the sports book is always popping no matter what day of the week, because that's where people have to place their bets. And like you said, now everything's pretty much gone mobile. So, okay. So this is great. So now, you know, you're, you're at the, you advance from ticket writer. How let's talk about the progression. Um, you start off as a ticket writer and then you wind up making your way up to an assistant manager. How long has that process taken? What are you learning along the way, Chris, um, to develop your skill set? Well, right from the outset, you know, I expressed an interest in this as a career, that it wasn't just like a temporary job for myself. And, you know, you've got people that work in sports books that aren't like looking to become the bookmaker or the odds maker. Uh, so that was, you know, step one. And like, number one, I had to just do the ticket writer job well enough, uh, not get fired from that. And, you know, let them know that if and when things open up, that I would like to move up within the company. Uh, and so I actually didn't write tickets for all that long. In fact, I want to say it was like three months. And then um, a position opened up sort of in the, the back room of the sports book, where you have a set of people that were responsible for um, putting together the betting sheets for the customers, the, the actual pieces of paper that had the lines on them and the rules uh, for betting on whatever the given event was. And we were controlling the TVs that were out in the sports book. So sort of an administrative role, but just getting into that back room, um, there were times where Ed or Jeff would be working from um, a desk back there. And like, we would just be talking about, you know, stuff, whether it was, um, you know, the line on a given game or a particular team or a particular player. I can still remember one time, um, I think Ed mentioned the name of a really obscure baseball player. And I knew what team he played for. And he was like really taken aback. Like, how the hell would you know who this guy is? And um, back then, and even now, I like know an obscene amount about baseball and <laughs> teams and particular players. And, uh, you know, in that role that I was back there, I'm, I'm learning some things, but I'm also trying to do this, this new position as well as I can. And, and still, like, I want to move up. Like, if there's something that opens, uh, and, 
for the supervisor position. Like I'd like to be considered. This is what I want to do. And so it was probably, I think it was like nine months of working in that administrative role. And then one of the supervisors left. And so that's when I got promoted to supervisor. And back then in that supervisor role, you had to do everything. Like you were working out on the front line and you're interacting with customers throughout your shift. You know, someone wants to get a comp to go to the buffet and you got to write them a comp and ticket writers have to, you know, um, open up and, and close their drawer for the day. And you got to like verify the money and you got to deal with all these different things. But at the same time, you're approving bets. You have uh, an odd screen up. You have all of the, you know, backend uh, software for the bookmaking and you're in there and you're moving a line and you're putting up a halftime and you're making a decision based on, you know, where the liabilities are. So it's not like that anymore and really anywhere, I don't think, but at the time, yeah, you're, you're doing all of these different things and you're getting exposed to the fun stuff, the bookmaking and the odds making. And yes, you know, the managers are doing the heavy lifting and like, making the big decisions, you know, somebody comes in and it's 9 PM and they want to make a bet. That's like, you know, 10 times what the normal limit is. Like, I'm going to make a phone call to somebody on that. Like I'm not making that decision. So, you know, management's got to be in a position where they're available, you know, by phone, like most of the time, because, you know, you don't put some junior supervisor person with very little experience in a position where they're making those kinds of decisions. Uh, but, you know, with the guidance of Ed and Jeff and Matt, I, you know, just progressed with being able to do those things competently and, you know, eventually getting to a point where, you know, I could pretty much handle certain markets on my own. Beautiful. Wow, what a great story, man. Nine, you, know, you know, you had to stay nine months, do that administrative. You paid your dues, you know what I mean? Just like, you know, in every every business, you got to pay your dues, and you really stuck it out. And I know it must have been it must have been tough to be able to do some stuff like that where, you know, you were itching and trying to get into a, a, a role where you're making decisions, and, and you finally got into that. So, okay, let's take us towards the tail end of, of your time at the Hilton. What, what you know, what happens and what makes you decide to leave and, 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 and let's go from there. Uh, over my course of the time working at the Hilton, I developed a lot just with my own personal betting. Uh, fortunately in Nevada, you know, if you work for a sports book, it doesn't mean you can't bet at other sports books. So I couldn't bet into the Hilton's numbers, which makes perfect sense. But I could bet at any other sports book in the state. And we were an independent sports book, so we're not tied to any other sports book in any way. And so I spent a lot of time and effort, you know, trying to uh, develop and improve my sports betting game. And I was very motivated. So I think part of it was that I had a certain aptitude for it. But the other part of it was just like hustling. And again, places didn't have mobile apps. So you had to go to the sports books to make bets. And I would drive around town. I'd go to places 
wherever I needed to go at almost any hour of the day when I wasn't working to like look for stuff to bet. Or if I knew they had a certain number that I wanted to bet, like I would go make that effort and go bet. And so, you know, I kind of figured out that I could get to a point where I could identify what was a good bet. And I was, I'm making bets and I'm, you know, I'm making a little bit of money and the more money you make, the more you can risk on things as time goes on. So like bankroll is going up, bet size is going up. I'm making enough money where it's like, it's really meaningful to me. And then I'm making enough that, oh, I could support myself just on this betting. Um, and I am. And I'm looking at like what my possibilities are, you know, working at the Hilton and I'm looking at my compensation and I'm looking at what opportunities there might be. And there's just not, not that many, you know, sports book management jobs in Las Vegas. You know, there's 15 or fewer sports books in town at the time. Uh, you got guys in positions like, you know, Ed and Jay have been in their positions for 25 years or so. And you've got, you know, stalwarts like Chris Andrews and Art Manteras that, you know, they, they did this for their whole career and something might open up tomorrow. Something might not open up for 10 years. And that's really tough looking at, you know, the position I was in and feeling like just by working in the role that I was in, that it was actually costing me money because the time I was at work was time that I could have been, you know, out there looking for bets or handicapping or whatever, you know, I thought was a good use of my time. And so I was like, I think I'm just better off if I uh, quit and just be full-time, you know, professional sports better. Um, I kind of found out that when I did have that much freedom, that that lifestyle didn't really suit me. Um, and if you want, we can get into what I was doing for a few years while I was out of the industry there. But yeah, that was what led to me um, leaving the Hilton. So who did you, who did you resign from? How was that conversation? Cause that's, that's an interesting thing. You know what I mean? Hey, hey listen, I'm no longer going to work for a sports book. I'm going to, I'm going to go on the other side of the counter. Um, did you talk to Jay? Who was your, you know, who was the boss at the time and how did they react? Uh, it was, I think it was like Halloween if I remember correctly. So it was, you know, in the heart of football season, end of October of 2013. And I had just like, I'd finally made up my mind. And like, I have a habit of sometimes uh, kind of staying in a certain position or status longer than I should, but I, I really like weigh my decisions carefully, but I like knew, okay, like I need to do this. And so I just told Jay one day, like, Jay, I need to talk to you. And I think he knew, um, and probably, you know, his past experience with, with Matt leaving, um, told him, you know, this is very much a possibility at any time, but we were able to, to sit down, I think pretty much immediately after I told him I needed to talk. And I said that I'm going to be leaving and he wasn't surprised. Um, I, <laughs> I actually said, I'll stay through the end of football season. Uh, sometimes I wonder if that was the right decision. Cause that was another like three months that I ended up staying. 
uh, until the Super Bowl was played. And that was actually my last day was uh, the Seahawks Broncos Super Bowl, um, which we did very well on. So I was glad that things ended on a, a good note uh, with that game. Um, but yeah, like Jay had told me previously, like he was, he was straightforward. He didn't ever give me any false promises about, you know, this industry and what the, the possibilities were. He's like, you know, people working uh, for the sports books that you're not going to get crazy rich doing that. And I was like, okay, that's pretty blunt, but you know, looking back, I'm glad he was honest with me about that. Now, the landscape has changed dramatically with that Supreme Court ruling a few years ago and what that means, I think, for the industry uh, across the country and globally. But at the time, like, that was a perfectly reasonable you know, thing to, to tell anybody working in the industry. And everyone's just got to make what they think is the best decision for themselves. So you know, looking back on it now, and it's been uh, more than seven years, since I left there, like I learned a ton. I'm so grateful for uh, the time that I had working with Ed and Jeff and Matt and Jay and, you know, some other people at that Hilton as well. But I know at the same time, I, I made the right decision. Beautiful. That's great. I love how Jay was a straight shooter. That's always a breath of fresh air. Okay. So you, you, you're betting you said it's the lifestyle is not for you. You take a break from the industry for a while. You wind up, um, and then and then you come back. Um, let's talk about you, you know if you want to get into what you did in the, in, in the in the in the time during the break. That's fine too. But then ultimately, I want to I want to get to how you know you know Matt called you and said, "Listen, there's an opportunity here. Um, you know, we, we could change the whole landscape." So, going well, let, let's get into that a little bit. So in January of 2015, I moved to Minneapolis, so back to the area I grew up in, and I actually went to work with my mom, who is a financial advisor at Morgan Stanley, and she had wanted any of her kids to come, you know, join her practice, um, you know, once she got to a point where, you know, she was pretty successful with it, and she thought she could, you know, benefit from the help of uh, having a a team and not being a solo practitioner. And so I was in Minneapolis and uh, going back to probably early 2018 as uh, when Matt first reached out to me about um, possibly, you know, coming to work for Circus Sports. Uh, he had gotten the job as the director and this is, you know, more than a year before a sports book's actually gonna open uh, under the circus sports umbrella. And so we had, uh, several conversations and I had made several trips out to Las Vegas, just spending time with Matt, talking to him, also meeting with Derek Stevens, who's the CEO of the company that owns circus sports and just, you know, trying to get a feel for what this would be like if I accepted this position I knew all along that like my favorite thing was still the sports betting industry. Just like looking at the daily market for baseball was, is probably my favorite thing to do. And that had never gone away. Like even in Minneapolis, like I was, you know, working this completely different job, but I was always looking at the baseball lines every day. And, 
it's just the thing that I'm the best at as well. Like I, I wasn't as good at the financial advisor stuff as I am at this uh, odds making and bookmaking stuff. And, you know, the landscape had just changed as well with the Supreme Court ruling and all of a sudden, okay, you know, there's going to be opportunities beyond just a group of a dozen sports books in Las Vegas. If you want to work in this industry and you're going to live somewhere in America. And I was like, geez, this, this is different, fundamentally different than what it was when I left. And so, you know, Matt and I were already friends too. So like we had this, you know, kind of built in history and, and friendship and, um, you know, knowing each other, that was like a good starting point. Um, if I'm going to, you know, move back to Las Vegas and have to break this news to my mom that I'm going to be leaving. And so, you know, we figured out like, you know, what the conversation was going to be and, and sort of what the, the team was going to look like at the beginning. And I was like, okay, I'm in. Uh, and so it made sense for me to actually start in this role two months before we were opening our first sports book. And so I moved back to Las Vegas uh, in March of 2019 and then started my role as sportsbook manager at Circus Sports in April of 2019 uh, in anticipation of us opening up on June 1st of 2019 at the Golden Gate in downtown Las Vegas. Wow, so this is great. Now, man, this is, so you, you wind up making that move back to Vegas and now you have a unique thing because not everybody's always around for a sports book opening. Um, how was the planning like to open a sports book? You know, you started a few months before that opening day, which I was, I had the privilege of, of being there at that opening day. How was, how was it like to, um, what, what planning had to be involved, you know, software testing, I'm sure, and everything else limits philosophical decisions on what you were going to do. Like take me through all that. Yeah. So we had two months uh, where it's it's a small group of people that have to figure out all of these different details, you know, to hopefully open up and have it not be complete disaster. And so one of the key things that I needed to do and know uh, before we opened was a whole new bookmaking software platform, which was not the same one that I had uh, used back when I worked at the Hilton. So that was critically important is that I understood how that platform operated. Um, And then, you know, at the same time, we're still trying to like build out a team so that we've got enough people in place to take the bets and to, you know, just do the bookmaking in the back room, um, you know, when we're open for business. And fortunately we've got, uh, you know, not just myself and Matt, but like our operations manager, Jeff Benson and uh, multimedia manager, Drew McCluzak, who really, you know, filled in a lot of those gaps that I didn't, which, you know, you wouldn't necessarily know from, what our titles are, but we had like four or five of us that were, you know, all kind of pitching in to take care of all of those different variables. And I was able to just mostly focus on, okay, here's what our menu is going to be on day one. 
make sure we're ready that it's that's open for betting uh, when we open for business and then just you know <laughs> be there booking the bets whose decision was it to go no juice that first day uh I think it was, you know, spearheaded by Matt. We definitely needed to get uh, Derek's approval on that. Um, it wasn't my idea by any stretch. It's like <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm very like conservative and sort of the accountant type of like, well, it's going to be really tough to win if I'm booking no juice uh, on anything, and just trying to see how that would look in person. You know, someone makes a a big bet, like, okay, how much do I want to move the line? And that sort of thing. We did come up with some rules of like, okay, you know, you can't bet the limit for whatever it was, five or 10,000, and then come right bet back and bet the other side for, you know, the same amount and get a free roll. Uh, that sort of thing. So we did come up with some, some rules for the promotion, but, you know, we're just starting out at this little booth inside the Golden Gate. Like, what are we? We're nothing at this point. Our name is Circa Sports. Like, what is Circa? Circa is nothing because it's this thing that's under construction across the street. We're in downtown Las Vegas. You know, if you're staying at uh, the Cosmopolitan on the Strip, like you're not coming to the Golden Gate to bet on sports uh, in June of 2019. So this was a way to get some attention. And, you know, if we didn't do some kind of promotion on day one, it would have been, I think, pretty sad because it's just a Saturday in June, which is, you know, not the busy time of year for this industry. But, you know, we had a nice crowd of people uh, on that opening day as a result. And uh, yeah, I, I think doing that no juice promotion um, on the, the major sports, major markets uh, definitely did get us some attention at the outset. Uh, especially at a time of year when, you know, it's, it's just not that busy. Beautiful. It was a great opening day. I was there. Um, I still hold the distinction of having the first losing limit bet uh, <laughs> uh, at Circa Sports. So um, I'm proud of that, that I was had the first. <laughs> I bet 20000 on whatever the soccer game was that day, and I lost. But um, that's the thing you know there. So, okay. So, let, let, you know, Circus Sports is is known now. I want, you know, I want to get a little bit more philosophical and how you guys operate. This is some, you know, um, you guys are or what separates you from the pack? You know, did you guys have this talk of of because here, again, this is what I this is what I noticed. And you correct me when I'm wrong. You guys take on everybody. You guys have standard a limit sheet that nobody else has. Or, or very few people have, if they, if they do, I'm not sure. But you have standard limits, which means you're going to take what it could be, you know, the, the best of the best, the worst of the worst, whatever. You're guaranteed at least this amount on a game, um, no matter who you are. Um, you, you don't put people on bet delays and make it spin out and, and, and do any of that. So, you know, all these things are such novel novel concepts that, that and it's 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 crazy how novel it is but that it shouldn't be novel but what you know th this is such a big thing this is matt spearheading this is this is how derek wants to run it explain to me how the when was the choice made that this is what circa is going to be um uh, you know bringing back bookmaking to las vegas as, as, as i like to put it 
Well, I think Matt deserves most of the credit for sort of what the, the core of circus sports is uh, from that standpoint. Um, but like myself and Jeff Benson, uh, we're of the same mindset of like, if you're going to be a bookmaker, like be a bookmaker, like not a dressmaker. Bets. Exactly. <laughs> like if, you, if you're going to go through the trouble of putting up some game, some event, some market, be willing to take a bet on it. Otherwise don't put it up. Don't just put it up for decoration. Uh, that's something that we can't be proud of and something that we find really irritating if anybody else does it, because, you know, we're not just bookmakers. Like we've have plenty of experience betting and I certainly know what it's like to, you know, try to make a bet on something and to, you know, be really annoyed and to roll my eyes at how low the limit is where like, I think I know very well what is fair and what's not fair uh, for a particular bet. And, you know, part of that is like, well, what's the most that this one bet could win? Like if you're going to bother having a sports book entity and the most that the bet could win is $500 and you won't take it. Like there's a real problem there. Um, so we, we all had that agreement, but you know, Matt has been leading the charge as far as how that actually gets implemented. And so it's been really important to us that, you know, everyone is welcome to bet with us, regardless of how sharp they are. And we are going to have standard limits that we promise to everybody as a bare minimum of what we can give you on a given market at a given point in time. And it's then, you know, our job as the bookmaker to, you know, move the line, book the game, however, in response to, you know, those bets coming in. And if it's someone that we think is likely a long-term winner, okay, well, let's use this information of the bet they made to then put ourselves in the best position that we can so we can be long-term winners as the bookmaker. Um, <laughs> I, it's funny. The, 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 what you're saying here, Chris, makes it's, it's so, so perfect. It's so crystal, crystal clear to me. Yet 99.9% .9 of the industry, this what you just said is completely foreign. It just doesn't, it doesn't click. And I don't know. I mean, again, I'm from, I'm a better, so I don't know, you know, so I can't, I, I don't know how it is to run a sports book. So I don't, you know, but I just don't understand. Like I'm trying to, I try to hear other people's arguments and, and, you know, you, what you're saying makes complete sense. And, and yet, um, why is it, maybe I'll just put it out to you. Why is it that 99 over 99% of the industry does not follow the standards and practices that you just described? I think broadly speaking, the owners of entities that have sports books as a department, as an arm of the overall um, corporation, they want the sports book to operate in the way that the other casino games do. And the other casino games, you know, other than, you know, some quirks of blackjack, for the most part, there's just like a known probability of outcomes and corresponding pricing. 
to guarantee that you know the business makes money over the long run. And sports betting is fundamentally different because we don't have the same sort of rigid known probabilities of outcomes. It's just a marketplace where it's a collection of people's opinions as far as what the probabilities are for almost everything that you're booking. And what that means is for you to make money as an operator, you have to have a certain talent level to actually profit because you could lose money on the endeavor. And so the combination of that vulnerability of potentially losing money and just not being able to withstand uh, the fact that there are going to be many losing days for the operator or not being able to stand, you know, a margin that's below a certain threshold in terms of profit is what is driving those decisions from other entities. And it's true, like uh, casinos make a lot more money on the slots than they do on their sports book. Like it's not the biggest profit making um, entity you know, within these companies. So on the one hand, like I understand why they're doing what they're doing, but on the other, it's like, why even have a sports book if you're not like willing to accept the terms of the game? And that's just the way this game is structured. It's something where, you know, you're going to have a lot of losing days, but if you have talented people and know what they're doing and you're able to get, you know, enough customers, enough volume betting into your markets that you will make money over the long run. And that's, you know, important to us at Circus Sports is, yeah, we, we understand the game. We understand that, you know, there are people that out there that are very smart and they make good bets and they're going to be long-term winners but that we can still have a successful business, um, you know, being welcoming to everybody. I think that's great. I think, you know, I, uh, you, you, you hit the nail on the head with that last line in which um, most of the people want to beat every customer where you're, you just want to make money for the company, right? So it, it, beating every customer is what, what a lot of, uh, they think that's a successful recipe. That's the recipe. As long as I beat everybody. But you're as listen. As long as I make money, sure. As long as my we we take in more than we give out, and sure, some customers are going to win, but we're going to utilize that information to the to the best that we can, and still make money for the company. Now, a lot of a lot of naysayers, a lot of you know doubters and stuff. I mean, I don't want to get into the exact details, but you know, listen. It had my guess is you know, Circuit Now has been open for over two years. Has has it been rocky? Have, you know, I, I, you know, was it a learning process? Um, can you just describe, you know, because you've been there since the inception, how was it, you know what I mean? How, how, how hard was it to establish yourself to be able to get to a, a state of constant profitability? Well, it's been um, about two and a half years now that we've been open. So first I would say we're still very young. Uh, lots of companies that are very successful today, you know, started up 20 years ago or more and didn't achieve 
you know, any re what most people would consider success, maybe until 10 years or more after they were, you know, first started. Um, not to say that we're not successful already in some ways, but like, I can't look at today as any sort of endpoint. Like, I think we're in the middle of a, a progression in the middle of developing and still maybe very early on in developing and progressing. And, you know, it has been, and I think will continue to be, you know, very challenging for us to make money because we're being pretty aggressive. I would argue in terms of the limits we're taking on most things, when you look at, and when I say <laughs> you, like it's, it's only a select group of people that are actually seeing what this is like in person, like, you know, Right now it's, um, it's mid November and we're right at the beginning of college basketball season and teams are playing, you know, their first few games of the season. And there's so many teams that are in division one and we don't have like the manpower and the resources to accurately price every college basketball matchup really, really well on an opener, uh, currently. And so what you see is, you know, pretty significant moves on a lot of games. There's a lot of games on the board and like early in the morning, we're writing a lot of bets, but it's mostly from sharp customers. And, you know, when you look at the sports books expected value on the collection of those bets, you know, it's probably negative um, right now. So there's, you know, certain aspects where it's like, yeah, we as the sports book are not getting the best of it but we're trying to look at the larger picture of, you know, just having people like our product and recommending it to others. And, you know, we may not be getting the best of it at 5.30 a.m. in mid-November on college basketball games, but, you know, hopefully that puts us in a position so that when we're taking bets on that same game at 3.30 and it's 30 minutes from tip-off that, okay, you know, now we're taking some bets where it's more to the house's advantage. We believe we have positive expected value on them. We can sort of uh, endure these most challenging markets. And then at the same time, you look at the other things where you've got more of an expectation of winning. And the most obvious example is, you know, NFL games, the most popular thing for people to bet on. It's the toughest market to beat typically especially close to game time that we are making up for, um, you know, the higher degree of difficulty events with uh, the, the bigger markets, the more popular markets where we, you know, have a higher expectation of profiting. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. I love hearing this and I'm, I'm your biggest fan. I, 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 I think you guys are, have everything, the right mindset. So, you know, you're saying you have negative expected value. Um, you know, it, like, you know, there's so many people out there saying, oh, my God. Okay, I mean, you hear it all the time. And I'm just going to just put you in a hot seat here, uh, Chris. A lot of people are like, oh, circus sports can never sustain this. Um, the soft book model is the way to go. Um, you know, how could they last like this? They, they have to be losing money. They can't la last like this forever, just taking on every sharp customer. What do you say to those people? Uh, I think over the long run, I mean, we do have to, 
win over customers that you know are betting into other sports books. If every customer is a winning sports better, then we, we aren't going to make money. Uh, so it needs to sort of be a, an ecosystem that is a net positive for circus sports in the long run. And um, if we don't, you know, win over enough of those customers, then yes, we will not have achieved the success that we believe we're capable of achieving. But even in the current environment, you know, we set the limits for every market, you know, independently based on, you know, what kind of action we expect to get on it, how much confidence we have in that market, uh, where we are in the cycle from, you know, the opening number up until the game starts. So we're trying to make intelligent decisions uh, around that at all times. So, you know, on Sunday uh, morning at 9 a.m., an hour before the game uh, for an NFL game, you know, anybody is promised minimum 100,000 on the point spread. Well, we're not taking anywhere close to that on the college basketball games and for good reason. So, you know, we're trying to make the decision on those promised limits so that we believe, you know, we're, we're finding that balance of fair, what we believe is fairness for the customer, but at the same time, something that, you know, we can just manage as the bookmaker. So we're not getting, you know, absolutely clobbered. Good point. Great point. You know, a, a sharp bookmaker once told me, he goes, listen, you can have all the sharps in the world, and that's great, but every successful sports book needs their fair share of suckers or, you know, recreational betters, whatever you want to call them. How, you know, and, and you're saying you're trying to acquire a lot of those guys, and then and, and how, you know, how, you know, how is it, you know, you have a, the world's most beautiful sports book. Um, it's a destination resort. Um, how, how, how has that process been? to try to be able to get, you know, rec- more recreational action. I think with the opening of the Circa Resort here in downtown Las Vegas, that helped us tremendously because uh, we, we opened for business before Circa was constructed. And so we just had our two properties at the Golden Gate and the D, which, you know, are not necessarily destinations for a lot of people. Uh, when it comes to sports betting and Circa, like one of the key elements of that property is the sports book. Like Derek wanted to make the sports book a destination. And it's kind of like the centerpiece of the casino. And, you know, from what I've heard, the feedback has been very positive as far as, you know, that being a great location to watch games. And, you know, we saw it immediately when that opened um, a little over a year ago that we were seeing, you know, new customers and, um, you know, bets that like we felt were probably, you know, good for us over the long run. And I've been, you know, pretty happy with what the development has been in terms of, you know, overall customer base and um, types of customers that we're getting but, you know, it's, it's very competitive right now. And you know, obviously not all the same sportsbook operators are in all the same states, but everyone's being forced to step up their game. Uh, there's so many investment dollars being poured into the space. 
you know, obviously you've got, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel are probably the two biggest in America right now, but like the way things used to operate in Las Vegas um, just isn't going to cut it going forward. And so everyone is having to like, you know, spend more money in terms of marketing and, and offer more, a bigger menu than they ever did before. So it just so happens, you know, that we're still pretty new, but I think everyone is having to deal with, you know, just this, this battle for customers. I think you made a great point in, in this fact that, you know, when it was just Golden Gate and the D, most of the customers that you had were most likely, you know, were mostly sharp. So if you were able to withstand that storm before the resort opened up, or, you know, dare I say, are you, you know, I don't want to say out of the woods, but like, have you been through the tough time? Has the storm settled now? And now it's a little bit more smooth sailing, not to say that, you know, there's still not much to be done and whatever, but, you know, was that first year, year and a half before the Circa Resort opened, was that the test? Was that the trial um, that you had to go through to be able to really fine tune your skills and develop and grow so fast and kind of get that, you know, sink or swim education type thing? Yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, it's true that, you know, right out of the gate, a lot of our uh, customers signing up for accounts were, were very sharp and, you know, they just wanted another out and they're not particularly concerned with um, this in-person sportsbook viewing, um, you know, experience. And they're not just betting on, you know, NFL sides on a Sunday morning. They're, they're picking their spots. Um, they're employing, you know, whatever strategies they can to make money because that's all they really care about, um, you know, utilizing sports betting for. Uh, yeah, that, that was very challenging, but the challenge hasn't really gotten any easier since then because we've only raised our standard limits since then. So I don't, I mean, it's, it's hard to go back now and sort of compare how I feel uh, to how I felt, you know, in the first like few months or year when it comes to that, because I still feel like every day it is extremely challenging to win or to like feel like I'm putting us in a really good position on a lot of the things that we're offering, because I think like, man, these limits are just so high and um, our pricing is just so generous. And, you know, I'm, I'm reminding myself of course that, well, yes, um, we're not going to make maximum profits today that we're doing this, you know, with a long-term view in mind. Um, but I've got a pretty, you know, and I think this is a good thing, like a pretty healthy fear of losing money. I have no sense of complacency whatsoever. I know that, you know, when you look nationally, um, that, you know, the, the percentage of, of handle that Circa is doing is, is nowhere close uh, to where a few other operators are. Um, I, I feel like, yeah, I got to keep doing what I've been doing indefinitely. And there has not really been a, a shift in mindset, but like, I, I'm not going to get too much into like the financial details, but you know, <laughs> we're, I've been very pleased with how we've done 
given all of these variables of the, the sorts of limits that we've been taking and the, the kind of pricing that we offer. Well, that's a testament to your skill level. Let's, let's, you know what I mean? It's, 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 it's not luck. It's skill. Uh, you put, you know, you and, 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 and Jeff and, and, and Matt and, and, you know, that your whole crew, I think that um, you guys are, have the talent and the skill level to be able to, um, to turn a profit and not everybody could do what you do. So, and I think, you know, in this, in talking to Matt, Matt, you know, of course, Matt wants to keep pushing, pushing the limits, getting higher, higher limits because he, he, he's so confident in the abilities of the staff. And, 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 you know what I mean? He, he it's like, you, you, you want to keep getting a little bit more, a little bit more aggressive, but I think he's still, you know, he's not going to go super nuts where he's going to say, okay, he's going to put you out in the deep end and let you sink. No, I, I think that um he's do. I think it, it's a fine line between, um, you know, letting you go just a little bit deeper, a little bit more aggressive, um, but still, you know, making sure that the company um, gets that profit and is successful and, and attracts more clientele. Is that safe to say? Yeah, Matt is uh, always pushing us to take as much as we possibly can on given markets. Um, you know, sometimes I'm doing things kind of, you know, on my own with the decision I'm making and I'm uncomfortable with like the limit I'm setting on a particular market and like, okay, like I know it's going to be, it's going to be tough for us to win on this, but at the same time, I know I should set this limit accordingly to have it be in line with everything else they're doing. Like if we're going to bother putting something up, we want to make sure, you know, we're taking a limit on that market that, is in line with, you know, everything else that we're booking and is something that we can feel proud of. And yeah, we can't, we can't survive without talent. Like you can't have just anybody um, in the role of bookmaker and, you know, say, Oh, you know, follow this number on the screen or whatever. You're not going to make money doing it that way. Like you have to have a certain level of expertise. You have to have, uh, a large enough group of people doing it as well. Like I can't do it by myself. Um, Jeff Davis can't do it by himself. Like we do a ton of work, but we also have, you know, team members that are extremely valuable and are able to manage the overall uh, workload, you know, whatever it happens to be based on the you know, time of the year that it is. Um, but that's what makes it fun. Like if you can do you know, this kind of work where it's, you know, everyone should be doing work that's challenging to them and intellectually stimulating. And, and that's what it is. And, you know, we're going to have more fun and we're going to make more money if we, you know, have a team of people that, you know, are really passionate about doing this and are really talented. Tell me about Derek Stevens, hands off, hands on, um, I, 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 you know, when I was there and I, I, I would have a drink with him at the bar and, you know, he, he's just watching the games. He's sweating the games. Like, you know what I mean? He has obviously he has action on every game now. So how, how is he more of like, you know, him and Mike Palm, they, they just love this stuff. Um, are they, are they letting Matt and, 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 and you guys run the show? Does he chime in? Does you know, tell me about how, uh, managerial style, um, what his role is. So Derek Stevens and Mike Palm, like before they ever had the sports book entity, they were already 
you know, into sports betting. Like they made bets themselves. They, they kind of get it from that sort of side of the counter Mm -hmm. uh, as far as how things work, but they didn't have any experience being on the bookmaker side. And I think, uh, (laughs) you know, Derek's had to learn that this isn't like the other casino games where you can just rely on, you know, a win every day that there are lots of losing days. The comparison that I like to make, you know, lots of people own stocks. The stock market's gone up a lot over the long run. But if you look at the stock market results on a daily basis, it's only up like 53% of the days. And that's kind of the same mindset you should have uh, if you have a sports book and you're the bookmaker is that you're going to win like a little bit more than than half of the time, but over the long run, like the wins are bigger than the losses and that you're a net winner overall uh, over a large enough sample size. And so I think, you know, Derek's had to endure a bit of, you know, plenty of losing days, which is true of any sports book. It doesn't matter what kind of model you employ. If you, you know, kick out every sharp customer or not, like, even the, the squarest sports bettors are going to, you know, win their minus 110 bets about 50% of the time. So he's, he's definitely learned that. Um, I really appreciate how he has confidence in myself and our team. And I don't ever really hear any Monday morning quarterbacking from him. You know, if we have a particularly bad day or a particularly bad game, he never says like, well, how come we needed, you know, that side on the game and not the other side? Uh, he trusts that, you know, we're making good decisions and over the small sample, you know, the ball's going to bounce how it bounces and, you know, we can't control it. All we can do is try to put ourselves, you know, in the best position uh, going into the games. So he's, he's very hands-off, like, you know, come into our, uh, our office where we're doing the bookmaking uh, every once in a while. And, you know, he's always like, Oh, I don't want to bother anyone. I know you're all like really <laughs> immersed in what you're doing there. Um, which sometimes is true. Like I, I really can't be distracted and I can't be having a normal conversation with somebody, but yeah, he's, he's like super friendly and respectful. And, you know, I think Matt certainly has different uh, relationship than I do since he's the director. And I think there's more sort of direct communication uh, between himself and Derek than there is between myself and Derek, but to not have, you know, somebody coming, you know, after a game is done and, and saying, well, what happened here? Why did you do it like that? Like that can be really irritating. And I'm very appreciative of um, like the trust and confidence he has in us. Beautiful. I love it. I love it. Okay. I'm going to ask you some questions now. We're going to get into like, just um again like more of like theory and questions because you know you're one of the few guests chris that i can get into the weeds a little bit about stuff so it's kind of going to be like rapid fire take as long as you want on some of these questions take you know uh you could take as short as you want so let's talk about um um the advantages of and disadvantages of hanging a number first um you know you guys um often hang numbers first you know is the juice worth the squeeze 
you know, a, a sharp bookmaker always told me, he goes, um, you know, being first to the, uh, to the opening number is, is not important, but the most important thing is being first to the closing number. So how is, you know, how is the decision on opening first? What does that entail? Uh, you know, what does that entail? And, and uh, then I'll, I'll ask some more questions after that, but let's talk about, you know, what decision is made to want to be first. I think a lot of the reasoning for being first is just sort of wanting the respect of the betting community to say, oh, you know, this sports book, like they have a real opinion or they have a real talent. They're not just followers. They're not just copying somebody else. Uh, And I think, you know, if you feel good about you know, the numbers that you're hanging as the bookmaker, as the odds maker, like it's fun. So an area where I am willing to put out an opening number is on baseball games. I'm reasonably confident in my ability to make, you know, the money line, the total and the run line for pretty much, you know, any matchup in major league baseball. And so it hasn't really worked out. We don't have the the resources for me to just dedicate myself to that completely. But the way that the the baseball market is on pretty much a daily basis throughout the course of the season is uh, typically, I think bet online has been the first number to put out or the first book to put out numbers on the following day's games. And at that time, we don't necessarily know who the starting pitchers are for every team the following day but then we'll get that information over the course of the day. And so it might get to be like, you know, 6 PM the night before. And there's maybe a few games that don't have an overnight line because we didn't know what, who the pitchers were and bet online or or other books that may have been originators. uh, Their baseball odds makers like done for the day and they're not doing any more baseball lines until the following morning. Well, I'm, in Las Vegas, you know, Pacific time zone, that's not particularly late for me. And I'm available to, you know, look at a matchup and and make a number on a game. So, you know, I was doing that for most every day during the baseball season where you had these little gaps in the following day's schedule and I'd put up a number. And as far as I knew, nobody else had a number. I mean, I didn't check every sports book in the world, but I've got my odd screen and didn't see anything else there. So I, I was making it on my own. And that's something where, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure my number's not terrible. Like it's not going to close way, way off of what I'm opening. So I don't feel there's a lot of vulnerability in me hanging that number. And then I just like doing it. I like saying, yeah, you can bet this game at circus sports, but can't bet it anywhere else in town. So, you know, come see us. And uh, I think, you know, that's just, you know, it's good for us, maybe not in a direct way to the results of any one particular game. But if you look at like the bigger picture, I think um, there's value to hanging the opening number, but I have no interest in doing it on sports where I don't feel confident in what that number should, should be like, I, that's not fun to me. So do you, do you write uh, action on your opening baseball line when nobody else has a lineup? Um, there's a lot of games where 
certain people just, they don't really bet their own opinion. And when there's only one sports book with a number, they're not going to get involved. Um, and a lot of the times I'll put a number out and it, you know, it's maybe 6 PM the night before and between 6 PM and 5 AM generally we're writing like small bets, you know, less than the limit bets, parlays, that sort of thing. And it's not until other books start going up with numbers in the morning, especially if there's a, a difference to my number, then you start seeing action. And also, you know, just the, the life cycle of the market, the, the limits increase as time goes on from the opener. And some people, you know, tend to wait till the limits get higher before they get involved with certain markets as well. Um, so, you know, sometimes you'll get someone like, okay, this is an opinion. They just think my number's not that good. They bet it, you know, we'll move the line. But a lot of times it just, there's not much happening until other books are going up with that game uh, in the morning. Beautiful. I love it. Okay. Let, let's talk about profiling customers because this is a very key aspect of any successful sports book operation. Um, okay. You hang up a number, you're, you're taking action. How's, you know, and, and you have a new customer sign up. You don't know who this guy is. Um, how, you know, and he's betting the limit every time. I'm pretty sure that's, that's one of the, how do you profile a guy? How do you know, okay, we need to be alerted when this guy bets um, and we need to move accordingly, or we need to have some type of alert system. How does it work? How do you, how long does it take? How many bets does it take? Is there somebody that's dedicated to looking at maybe win loss statements? Is there somebody looking at closing line value? What in, what is entailed in profiling customers to sharp customers to be able to utilize their information going forward? I think one of the key components here is there's to, to try to simplify it because there's a whole spectrum of you know um, skill levels and, and betting patterns, but uh, I guess most fundamentally there's customers that are betting things where they have no real opinion on what the line should be. Um, They are just betting something because we have the best number on that side, whether, you know, it's a half point better on the point spread for a football game, or it's just, it's a scalp on a money line. You know that they're only betting it because our number is different than some other sports books and they either are guaranteeing themselves a profit or they're putting themselves in what they believe is a profitable position uh, by betting both sides of the same game at two different uh, sports books with different numbers. Uh, So like that betting pattern, you can usually identify pretty quickly Um, you know, they'll never bet into your number if you're the only sports book that has it. And, you know, the bookmakers doing the same thing that most bettors are doing. We all have odd screens where we can see what the line is at a bunch of different other sports books. Um, so if, you know, someone's making a bet and you can see, you know, oh, well, we're the very best price on this in the market, or I can see that it's actually a scalp to, you know, one other book at the time, then, you know, okay, this is how this person bets. Uh, I can be fairly confident. This is why they are betting. 
And then you have to use that knowledge accordingly. You know, it may be that we are very intentionally offering a given price and wanting that type of better to make that bet. And we say, okay, thank you. Um, that's exactly what I wanted by offering that number. There are other times where it may not be a market that, you know, we've taken much action on and we don't have a real strong opinion on. And you know that they're only betting it because you look on the screen and you see this number is moving at a bunch of other sports books, but no originator has bet it at Circus Sports. So you're like, oh, okay. I see why they're betting this because it's moving at the other sports books. I didn't necessarily want the bet because I don't have an opinion on what the number should be. And the movement at the other sports books is indicating to me that, you know, the sharps are betting it there. So, you know, indirectly, like we're getting the sharp action uh, from those people that are, are following what they see on their screen. But still, like I can be pretty sure why they're making the bet that they're making. And then on the other end of the spectrum are like, right. the sharp opinion bets. Okay, so, so let, let's talk about those first two, and then we'll go to the sharp opinion. So the first two is your scalpers, your middlers. If you have the best line in the world, you're moving that line to be the best line in the world. You, more than more often, you intentionally have that number. You say thank you. So are arbitrage betters? Do they help you? Do they hurt you? A lot of sportsbooks hate arbors. They hate guys that middle and scalp. Oh, you're, they're the worst. How do you feel about that? Well, they're they're helpful and they're harmful, I would say. Um, so that first example I gave you where I, I said we are very intentionally offering the best number mm -hmm. and they're betting it, I would say they're helpful. Good. Where we don't have an opinion, a strong opinion on a game, or we don't have you know, some information that will move the market and they're just able to basically follow somebody else's opinion, I'd say generally more harmful because you know that's probably negative expected value mm -hmm. for us. And if the number is moving at all the other sports books, then it's going to be hard for us to get a bet back on the other side without it being, you know, a scalp to the first bet or just an undesirable position in terms of the point spreads involved. Um, overall, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, part of the issue is, there's a, a, a subset of people that have the same betting strategy and you'll have situations where you're getting multiple bets from different customers on the same thing where you, you would have moved the number with just the one bet. You didn't really want three or four of them. Uh, so that's the challenge of sort of managing uh, the customers that have that betting style is being able to, you know, just, not take too much money at one number that you can't really, you know, do a whole lot with. You're just kind gotcha. of in a position that's, that's not great for the sports book. Perfect. So the first example, just to be clear, everybody's painted six. You have the only five and a half in the world. Somebody lays you five and a half. You're happy because you think that game's probably going to close five. You got information ahead of time. Somebody probably took you, took six from you earlier on. Um, uh, it, 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 the second thing is like a steam chaser, guys that are just playing steam, markets moving, and you're writing that action. It's hard to be able to, to, to utilize that action because the line is just moving up. 
um, you know, w with respect to that, are you, you know, you know, and again, it, there's no right or wrong answer. So if you see a line, let's say the world's painted six, everybody's going to seven. Um, you're not waiting to write a bet on the minus six. If you think that's line going to go to seven, why wait? Are you going to go to seven or are you going to wait to write the bet at minus six? It's going to be specific to uh, the particular game. Mm -hmm. um, if it's a market where, you know, we're expecting to write a decent amount of action, um, we're still at a point where the limits will be going up later. I may be more inclined to see like, okay, well, who actually thinks this is a good bet? I want to, I want to see the bet for other markets where we might already be at the maximum limits or there's some uncertainty with a player that's questionable uh, and, or we feel like, you know, we're just probably not going to write a lot of action in this market just organically, then yeah, I'll just move on air. Cause like, I don't, I don't necessarily want to take the bet at this number because it's, it's probably a good bet and they'll just be very unlikely that I'll be able to put us in a good position going into the game. Beautiful. So there are, there are times to move on air and it's not wrong to move on air philosophically. Oh, I, there's always, yeah, times yeah, no, I, and, and, I move on air all the time. Yeah. And then there's times in which, um, um, where moving on air is not the right move. Like you just said, if you already have a position, if you have some, uh, some good limits and, you know, um, let's, let's get into the, the fakeness, the dumminess of it. You know, if people dummy markets up, how, you know, lines going from six to seven, you have that six, um, and, and you believe, you know, you have strong, strong feeling that, that the dog is the right side. You have very sharp customers betting you the dog earlier. Um, are you confused? There's no injury information. How does some, how do you react to something like that? Um, well, you know, what do you do? So the um, practice of some people trying to manipulate the market Um is a reason for not moving on air mm -hmm. to actually be taking bets um, at any given number. Uh, so that's certainly an added layer of complexity to the job we're doing because there are people out there and it's been this case for a long time that will want to bet the wrong way, you know, at, at maybe one book or a couple of books. And since, you know, we're all using these odd screens, and a lot of places just don't have an opinion on a lot of different markets. They're really leaning hard on what they see on their odd screen that a lot of places can be moving their number on air because they see another book move and they don't want to be, you know, out of line and that it can open up the possibility for the market manipulators to then get a better number than was out there earlier and you know, bet as much as they can at all of their outs than at the improved number. So that's, you know, in terms of, you know, how how difficult, how complex, you know, this scale of, of bookmaking is. I think that's that's right near the top. Just being aware of, you know, people trying to manipulate the market, and that's where it's so valuable to have at least some base level of knowledge about the particular sport that you're booking to know that the number ought to be, you know, within a certain range and that it, it wouldn't make any sense for it to be outside of that range and not to be completely dependent on what you see other books offering. Um, so that's something that, uh, 
you know, is actually helpful, I think, in terms of us, you know, taking what we consider to be fair limits to all customers is we've got a lot of sharp customers. Like if they think a good, there's a good bet to be made, made, they're making it. And if, if that bet's not being made, then we can be reasonably confident that our number is good. That's great. So, so figuring out what's manipulating, what's, what, you know, in, in your tenure and, and, you know, in your years of experience, do you believe manipulation has increased, decreased, or stayed about the same? I don't think there's really been like a noticeable difference, at least in the time that I've been a bookmaker in terms of um, frequency of, of attempted manipulation or, or overall sort of influence of market manipulators. Um, we're definitely seeing some of it, but you had Billy Walters go on 60 Minutes and admit that he was a mar market manipulator like a dozen years ago. So this isn't anything new, and I don't think it's, it's really fundamentally different than than what it's been for as long as I've been doing this. Have you spot, like, are, do you feel as if, the you know, like you said, it's at the top level of bookmaking, to be able to spot a manipulation, have you seen it happen and you're like, nope, I'm not moving. Uh, I'm, I'm standing pat because I know this is bullshit and you wind up being right. How, do, how does something like that feel when that happens? Uh, that's, that's actually kind of fun when like <laughs> you can have, that level of confidence in a number yeah. and you can say, okay, no one who's betting into this right now really is like getting one over on me. Like uh, whether it's, it's uh, someone trying to follow the move they're seeing on the screen or someone just, you know, purposely betting the wrong way into the number that we're offering. And then we just make like little to no move compared to what we would normally do. I think that's a great feeling to be in that position. And uh, that has been the case on, you know, some of the markets we have, but it's, it's true that we're not, you know, experts in every single thing that we put up on our betting board and don't have the same confidence in everything we have on our menu. I'll never, you know, it, it, it's, it's, you know, spotting and manipulation, at least for me and for my staff is one of the most beautiful things in the world. Um, you know, to spot a fake and, and, and to just pound it. You know what I mean? That's such a, a, a such a great thing. And I can just try to imagine that's the reason why I asked the question is from your side, when you spot it, you know, for us, when we spot it, we bet it. But for you, the, the joy is when you spot it and you don't fall for it, you don't move. So that must be so, you know, I, I guess being in, in, on, the, on the front lines in the battlefield um, to be able to spot a fake and say, no, I'm not falling for it. That must be so, um, at least for me, you know what I mean? I, I catch hard-ons with shit like this. Um, <laughs> you know, so uh, it's like, um, I'm, I'm, and, and you, you seem like you, you feel this. I don't know if you catch a hard-on, but you feel the same way that you really enjoy the game within the game. Yeah, and actually, I wasn't um, thinking of this as I was sort of explaining that a minute ago, but the, the area where that has um, stuck out the most for me personally, because I understand the market so well, and the thing I've actually like told my coworkers is, you know, when I come in early in the morning um, during baseball season, and I'm going to be booking the baseball games in the morning, and I'm putting up our derivatives for the games, like I know 
what people want to bet in the first five innings. And I will shade my numbers relative to the market on the first five innings. And I see it. They try to manipulate the pinnacle number. And I'm like, I know they want to bet the other side of this. And I just stick with my number and I'm a scalp to pinnacle and we get some scalper bets. And I just like, I leave it or I barely move it. And eventually the number comes back my way. And yeah, that feeling, it's pretty good. It's the best feeling in the world. And I know, I, I know most people listening to this uh, are probably like, damn, these guys are kind of sick, or, you know, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, I can just imagine, because again, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a feeling that we both kind of feel, but it's on different sides of the counter type feeling. Um, so, and, and you know, it, it's, um, I just, I, I enjoy hearing that, that how much you love that. Okay, let's talk about the third profile now. So you have your your, your, your arbitragers, your middlers, you have the steam chasers. Now, let's talk about the third type of sharp that you said, the guys that have their opinion that are betting into a painted number. So you have a five, everybody else has a five, you get a bet minus five. Now what? So yeah, these are the, the sharp opinion bettors that are not betting a number because it's different than another sports book. They're betting the number because they believe it's value at that number. Um, and there's kind of two um, distinct cases within that. There's the really big betting groups where they're betting it like everywhere they can bet it pretty much simultaneously. And you know that if they place a bet with you, like you better move this number in a hurry because it's going to be moving at the other sports books as well. So in doing that, you know, you're going to want to move it so that you don't take, you know, a second bet at the same number, but at the same time, you might be fast enough where you can make a strong line move and get a bet back immediately the other way from a customer who might otherwise not bet that, but you move fast enough where they happen to be looking at their screen and they think, oh man, this uh, Circa just won a, a full point off market. That's a good bet. Well, the whole market might be there within five minutes. Mm. And uh, if you can get them to bet that quickly enough, uh, that's a good thing because otherwise, if the market moves so fast or you move too slow, well, every sports book will have moved a full point and then you won't get that bet back. And, um, you know, who's to say what's going to happen the you know, rest of the way with that particular market? But you know you would be happy to write a bet back at just a one-point difference from what you took from a customer that you consider pretty sharp. And, you know, if anybody is, you know, placing that bet and it's being placed at many other sports books and the market's moving to that degree, well, that group then has a lot of influence on the market if they're able to do that. And, you know, it's, it's probably good. It's probably pretty sharp um, if they're having that sort of influence on the market. Now, you also have some customers that, you know, when they make a bet, they're not necessarily betting it at a bunch of other sports books simultaneously. And, you know, you may have a large enough sample size of uh, information from this customer's history where you, you believe that they're making sharp bets, that they're likely to be a long-term winner if they're not already a winning player. And then you very intentionally will move your number to be different than the other sports books um, because you've got this information from a sharp customer. You know, if they took six on a football game, well, I don't want to keep offering six. Yes, I see the other books are six. And so, 
you know, based on whatever's happening with their betting, they're, they feel comfortable or feel that's the right number. But this information I just got from one of our sharp customers is telling me they think plus six is a good bet. So now I'm going to go to maybe five and a half or five, and I'm going to want someone to lay the five and a half or five, because I don't think that's a good bet, even though there are sixes at other books. So this is where the arbitrages or the middlers actually are, are good for you. You know, they're, 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 they're great for you. You, you welcome them. You need those guys. Uh, yeah, depending on, I think, you know, again, how confident you are in that particular market, what sort of range you expect the number to stay within. Yes. So if it's, uh, you know, it's, it's Wednesday uh, and we're in football season and this game's going to be played on Sunday, a lot of people aren't even looking to bet until Saturday or Sunday morning. So you're not even going to have a possibility of getting those people to bet the minus five and a half, it's going to be sharp customers that are looking at their, you know, NFL uh, screen on a Wednesday as a, even being a candidate for making that bet. So yes, in that case, you know, if you're looking to write a bet on the favorite on Wednesday, like those customers will, will and can be helpful in uh, balancing your book. Now, how, how hard do you know how to move? Like how hard, you know, you just set a point. Do you ever move a point and juice? Like if somebody writes you a bet plus six flat, do you ever go, do you ever, would you ever go to five dog 15? Would you go to four and a half? Why not five and a half? Like, what decision are you making? And you got to make this decision on the fly, right? You got to make it within a second or two, you know, how, you know, cause you want to write that, you want to write that favorite bet, but you don't want to, you know, you want to write it for as cheap as possible, obviously. Like, heck, you would love to be able to just go to five and a half, somebody lay you five and a half. But like you said, it's probably going to get the five in the next five minutes. So you want to be able to, to you know, write that bet with confidence and know that somebody's going to grab it um, as soon as possible. So what decision is made on moving the line and how aggressive you move that line? So that's going to involve quite a few different variables. Uh, first and foremost, if it's coming from an account where you think the whole market is going to move, that's where you need to be particularly aggressive. If this, if this group is like not necessarily controlling the market, but has a lot of uh, influence over where the number's at and pretty much always beats the closing number, you need to be more aggressive than if it's someone that is very sharp, you know, maybe is, is winning at like a, a 6% clip, but if they're not moving the whole market, you just don't need to move it as much to get a bet back on the other side. Um, if it's a point spread, you have to have some sense of what the values of the numbers are. Um, if someone took plus three and a half minus 110 on an NFL game, uh, I'm probably not moving to two and a half minus 110 because of how valuable the three is. If someone is taking, um, you know, 12 and a half on an NFL game, well, I might go, you know, right to, to plus 11 off of that bet because the 12 is not particularly valuable. And, um, you know, I might need to go all the way to 11 to have really any shot of writing a bet back on the favorite. So, you know, knowing how much that 
individual or that account is part of a larger operation to move the market, um, how sharp you consider that individual better or that group to be, the values of the numbers that you're touching um, from where you took the bet to where you're moving it to. Um, are there still unknowns as far as, you know, is, is the quarterback of a team questionable? Mm. Is somebody on the COVID list that you mm. don't know if they're going to be available for that game or not? All those individual player and team uncertainties have to be factored in as well. Um, how early are we in the life cycle of the market? You know, mm. did we open this an hour ago or has it been up for four days? Yes, are yes. we at our full limits? Are we at half of what the limits are going to be? I accept that from opener until close that the bets that were taken at the extremes, you know, whoever got the best number on the underdog and whoever got the best number on the favorite, you know, we're not going to win to those two, you know, outcomes in isolation. Um, but we need to be writing enough money in between mm. that's to our advantage so that like the net results when the game starts, we believe as the bookmaker that we have positive expected value. Um, and yes, we're trying to keep, you know, those bets within as tight a range as possible. You know, sometimes an NFL number, it opens three, it closes three, and it only moved like 15 cents one way and, and it came right back. Other times, like just take, uh, we had a, Panthers Cardinals game uh, this past Sunday in the NFL, where we were at 10 and a half thinking there was a good chance. Kyler Murray was going to be able to play for the Cardinals and that game closed seven flat. And that's a pretty big move um, from midweek until game time on an NFL side. So you have to always remind yourself like anything can happen and you don't know, like for sure, the range the the point spread is going to stay in, and so you got to make sure, like, okay, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to move it too much, but at the same time, you really don't want to move it too little, so that you only, you know, took bets pretty much on one side, and you just didn't envision the number closing where it did. Beautiful. This is such a description of the art of bookmaking, man. That last whole thing that you just did. Oh man. I like, I was touching myself to be honest. That was yo, incredible. <laughs> really like beautiful. So well said. So perfect. It's like, Chris, I, I'm, I love this. I love it. I love it. Um, I want to get the profiling because you know, you're processing all this information. Who does the profiling? When is that done? Is that done at the end of the night? Is that done in the midst of, of the moving? Like, how do you say, okay, guys, we need to pay attention to this. Is there a list of customers or is, does the software allow you to say, when this guy bets, we got to hear a, a, a honk, a horn or something where we know, oh shit, this is it. Like, you know what I mean? Because you're writing so much action, you know, you, you can't, you can't look at every single bet probably, you know what I mean? Or, you know, the smaller numbers, is it just limit bets or big, high money bets? Is it certain, certain customers that you're looking at? What alert systems do you guys have in place 
And who is changing those profiles all the time? Because, you know, the profiles are changing, obviously. Some guys might, you know, are they sports specific? Some guy might be really sharp at the NBA, but not so sharp at the NFL and vice versa. Uh, yeah, so to give you a little bit of what our experience is like on the bookmaking side, we have these applications that, um, you know, show us the bets as they're coming in real time. And we can filter that information in a number of ways. Uh, yeah, there's like a lot of bets coming in that you don't really need to see because you're not going to do anything with the information. Uh, a lot of that is just coming down to how much money is being risked, you know, so you can filter by like a dollar amount of what you see coming in. Um, but there's, there's a few ways that we can um, label the customers internally. And so when a particular you know, account places a wager, it doesn't matter if it's on the mobile app or you know, if it's um, over the counter, we'll see the bet information on this application and we'll see their name. And we have some codes basically to label the type of better that they are. So it will indicate to everyone on the team sort of the, their betting style, you know, if they've got like a sharp opinion. Can we get um, into if, the codes? Can we get into the different types of codes? If you don't mind, if, if I'm asking too many, if I'm getting too deep trying to, and I'm trying to peel the curtain back, if you're like, listen, now you're really trying to, you know, we're not opening the full curtain up to you. I'm just, you know, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. I'm not going to get into the exact uh, details of, of how we do it. I'll just gotcha. say qualitatively, like mm -hmm. we have a way to, quickly identify, yes. okay, we think this, you know, or, or we know because they've been a customer that's placed many bets with us. Um, they're, they're labeled as the person that has this betting pattern. Like they're a sharp customer. They're, they're betting an opinion. They're not just betting it because our number is different than another sports books. Mm. And then the other customers that are, you know, looking to bet scalps and middles and um, just following moves on the screen will be labeled a little bit differently. And that's really important to say, okay, we just took this bet. I know this person is only betting it because, you know, the, the number moved at pinnacle. They don't actually have an opinion on anything. So we need to keep that in mind as this market evolves. And you know, not every dollar is treated the same from the bookmaker's perspective. So you got to have an opinion of, you know, why someone made the bet they did and if it's a good bet or not in isolation, um, you know, then you have like, you know, new customers that when they start making bets, we don't have any such label. So we have to figure it out. And some of that, you know, becomes apparent pretty quickly as far as what their style is. And some people like, you know, it takes us some time until we come up with a label we feel is appropriate for their betting style. Um, because you can't just put everyone in two buckets of, of sharp versus square. Mm. It's just not like that. It, everyone's no. on the spectrum somewhere. Some, you know, people are, are really, really good. And they're, they're 6% winners. Some people are like 1% winners and they're, they're just scratching out a profit. And, um, it can, you can't necessarily identify those two people, um, after 20 bets or so, sometimes it's going to take a larger sample 
And part of the identification is also going to be like, are they always betting what our limits are? Like not that many people are betting into our NFL limits on a Sunday morning. Like Mm -hmm. you can be a good sports better, but it doesn't mean you're betting a hundred thousand per game. Mm -hmm. Um, So you also have to be like aware of the people that are good. They're, they're making good bets, but they just might be, you know, for whatever reason, bankroll, just what they're comfortable with. They're not betting your limits, but you can still get valuable information from the bets that they're placing. How many different sharp classifications without getting into the details, like you said, do you put on? How many different ones? We really try to simplify it. And um, I would say there's three. I mean, it's, it's someone who's consistently betting a sharp opinion. Like they're just not, spending their time trying to, to bet off market numbers. Like if they're betting something, it's just, this is a good bet uh, is what their strategy is. And then there's like just the the stone cold scalpers, board cleaners that are only interesting, interested in betting. If they are guaranteed a profit, they have no interest in taking any risk whatsoever. Uh, It's just purely, um, you know, quantitative, purely business. Otherwise they're not getting involved at all. And then you've got sort of the, the hybrid of those two where, you know, a customer might be, you know, following the moves on the screen. They might be betting something because it's a scalp. They are very aware of the market. You know, they always take the best number, but they're much more selective than the person that is like, exclusively looking for scalps and middles and they'll bet things that are like it's the best number but not like way off market either you know it could be a football point spread where like a few books have four most of the books are four and a half and they're laying four like that's not some huge edge in terms of scalping and middling but like they do have some opinion that they're putting in if they think it's worth it to bet, you know, the minus four that isn't widely available, but isn't really off market either. Beautiful. How do you feel about customers that bet both sides of the same game? Um, I'm, I mean, I'm fine with it. Uh, I, I'm not a fan of the market manipulators. Like I don't, I don't have any sort of like, uh, adoration for for trying to manipulate the market um but it's just if someone you know happens to bet both sides of the same game with us whether that is a few minutes apart or you know they bet one side on tuesday morning and then came back and bet the other side on sunday morning um it's it's all fine to me like it's on me to uh try to decipher like why they're making the bet that they're making. And if I want to, you know, move the number uh, as a result or not, like, I, I guess some people or some operators have a, a big issue with people um, betting both sides of the same uh, game or, or market or whatever. But yeah, that's fine by me. I'm not, not sweating that. I completely agree with you. Um- Okay, how about, um, you know, you guys book every single sharp. Um, 
and, and you know, pretty much, you know, how many sharps really are there out there? Rough estimate, like how many winning sports bettors or what percentage would you say of sports bettors out there are winners? Yeah, I always think of this as interesting when people speculate on, uh, I guess, what percentage of people that bet on sports are long-term winners. And <laughs> the funny thing about it is um, just for me personally and I guess what my experience and history has been with betting and I, I've, I've, I've turned a profit doing it. And um, I don't think I'm anything special. So I feel like it, it can't be this like obscenely low percentage. Like some people are speculating because I, there are definitely people that are better with um, computers than I am. And like, I don't do any modeling and, I'm definitely not the smartest person. Like if I could figure out how to, to like make money doing at this, I would think a lot of people could. I think a lot of people don't because, you know, they, they just don't have the time to dedicate to it. I've had the time to be able to dedicate to it. And I think working in the industry and working with the people I've worked with has helped tremendously in that regard. Um, but if you like just know some people that are, you know, sharp with sports betting, like I would think you could, could teach a decent number of people to, to make money for themselves. Um, and then like, what are, what counts as like part of the sports betting population? Like we're not counting the people that bet once a year and only bet on the Super Bowl, right? Mm -hmm. we're, yeah, yeah, we're thinking yeah. about people that are, are, I don't know, are trying to win and are mm -hmm. betting at least on a, a monthly basis or at least, really focused on one sport is that sort of the yeah i think the that's population like, yeah the population so like and i'm not talking about guys that could you know on a part-time i'm saying how many do you feel are professionals in which they're actually this is all they do they actually make uh uh i don't know let's call it a six-figure income um just betting sports um i'm gonna because I can't really even give a good answer probably beyond what my perception is of yeah. what's happening in Nevada specifically. Um, but if I think about like the Nevada population, how many people here do I think are like making a, a decent living um, betting on sports? Uh, I've got to think it's, I think it's, it's got to be several hundred people. Uh, I don't know. I think at least 300 people. Um, and that's just within the state of Nevada would be Nevada. sort of, you know, just throwing a number out there, but yeah, it's, it's really tough for me to, to. And you're booking all 300. You're, you book all 300 for the most. I part. mean, at, <laughs> at this point, I don't know, like if you're sharp, like why wouldn't you have a circus sports account? Uh, oh, great, yeah. <laughs> if you're in Nevada. Yeah. Uh, Cause I know what is, being offered on you know the other apps in the state uh yeah I, I think for the most part they're they've got an account with us and are betting something with us one way or the other colorado iowa something tells me there's not as many sharp people out there <laughs> uh, i i think 
for the most part, like the biggest driver is just overall population. Yeah. I, I don't feel like there's going to be that um, big of a discrepancy based on particular state mm-hmm. uh, necessarily or part of the country. I mean, I think smart people are everywhere yeah, and of course. Are, are located in a given state for, you know, any number of reasons. So, you know, I have way more sort of direct experience with uh, Nevada customers, but we are um, open in Colorado and Iowa with a mobile app and, and we're learning, you know, we've seen some uh, extremely sharp customers betting in Colorado uh, we're pretty new to Iowa, so uh, I can't really provide a lot of color on uh, Iowa customers at this point. But uh, I would not presume, you know, whatever states we may open in in the future that, oh, we're going to see a sharper or less sharper uh, clientele than we see in our current jurisdictions. Yeah, most um, the reason why I say that is most professionals live in, you know, most professional sports bettors would probably live in Nevada for the most part than they would in Colorado or Iowa. That's just in general. But I do know there's some people that have actually moved to Colorado just to bet sports. So, um, so for you to even say, you know, it's because uh, Colorado is a pretty ripe market. Um, okay, I'm just trying to look over my questions here. I think you, you, you knocked them all out. I got one more question, and this is, a, you know, let's talk i want to talk about limits because you guys you know you guys increase your limits throughout the day sometimes you know what pinnacle is made famous what we call the blue circle where you would actually take higher than house limits um on certain games what decision is made for you to say you know what i'm so confident at this number right now i've written enough or, or what is it i don't know what it is that you're saying okay here it is come at me i don't care who you are come and get it uh, basically if you see like an aggregation of opinions and you've got bets on both sides to say, okay, this customer or this group of customers sees value on this side at this number and this other customer or group of customers sees value on the other side at this number and it's in a very tight range, then I think that justifies increasing your limits than what they otherwise might be. And that'll happen occasionally um, for whatever reason, you know, maybe a college football game. There's a group of people that really want to take plus three, minus 110. And then there's another group of people that really want to lay two and a half minus 110. And you know, whatever our, our number is, minus three even, we can put something out there. And we know we've got sharps on this one side and we've got sharps on this other side, and it's all in this narrow range, we should be, be very confident that this number, like right in the middle, is a very strong number, and why not take a bigger bet if that's the case? Beautiful. Man, Chris, you really, um, you really took us to school today, um, and you really, uh, I really, really enjoyed this conversation, brother. This was fascinating. Thank you so much for peeling back the curtain. Um, before we close, I ask every guest, the name of the podcast is called Be Better Betters. A lot of aspiring pros, um, guys, even several pros listen to this, but guys, you know, up-and-comers, aspiring pros, even novices. You know, is there one piece of advice that you would give somebody to be a better better? What would it be? Only one. Uh, <laughs> no, you go ahead. Give as many as you want, Chris. The floor is yours. 
Um, yeah, there's probably a few things and I, I don't know if I can rank one above the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to, you have to be getting the best number first and foremost on anything you're betting. So, um, having like an odd screen so you can see the numbers at every sports book, I think is critically important. Uh, you need to, you need to be able to approach sports betting, uh, and, and look at games, look at outcomes in terms of probabilities, not from the standpoint of, oh, I think this is going to happen. That's the wrong way to think about it. Um, to, to look at a, an NFL game and, and say a 10 point favorite is going to win like that statement holds no value whatsoever. Like you have to think about things in terms of probabilities. You have to be willing to bet on things that you don't think are going to happen, but that the odds are in your favor over the long run. Like you have to understand what expected value is and implement that into your betting. And then I think the other thing that's really important is to, I guess, get to know as many other sharp people as you possibly can. Uh, Cause if you combine your knowledge, like you're going to just have um, conclusions that are, are sharper and are going to lead to better bets. Wow. Great advice. Shop around network and understand that everything's no, don't get, don't get married to a team or think everything should be in probability format. And I think, you know, what a, what a trifecta of great advice for anybody out there that, that wants to, to, you know, get better at betting. Chris, I really, really appreciate it, man. I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know it's a busy time of year and you're a busy man, but it means the world to me for you to come on a podcast and I, I uh, man, I really, like, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. So thank you so much for the time. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for the time. Until next time.